0: Tabby is our piano player. Her fingers are insured for $100 million each. <laughs> if you have your Bibles this morning, I want you to turn to the book of Deuteronomy. We're going to get there in a few minutes. Um, as you know, this we have been coming through uh, the last three weeks. This will be the last uh, part of this. I wanted to, I wanted to go on record uh, for the website, for future generations, and for, you know, so many of you young men and young ladies that God is really doing a work in your life here, I, I really wanted you all to understand the concept of the New Testament local church. Probably, I mean, there are so many things in Christianity that are, that are misdefined today and are really out of whack, and uh, the list is pretty much endless, And certainly one of the misconceptions today is understanding the New Testament local church, how it really impacts and what God is doing with it, and and how important it is into your life. I've heard people all my life say, well, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. That's basically true, but I will add to that this, you need to go to church to be a good Christian. I mean, church is not essential for your salvation, but boy, it sure is after you get saved. And that's what we've been talking about. We've been trying to look at it. And I, and I have come through here. And uh, last week, uh, we talked about uh, the patterns found in the Bible. God does everything by a pattern. Everything in our Christian life that we should do, when you don't understand it, if you find a pattern, just follow the pattern. God also uses models. The first couple of weeks, we looked at the church at Antioch in Acts chapter 11, 12, and 13. How that that church is the model New Testament church. And now, last week, we started looking at patterns. And the pattern for the New Testament church is found uh, within the nation of Israel. We know now that the nation of Israel is called the church in the wilderness, Uh, it's called a congregation, just like we are. And so we we learn a lot by what God is doing in in the Old Testament. It's no secret, and I've told you many, many times, God's Old Testament structure, God's structure in the Old Testament to reach the world was the nation of Israel. Under the concept of the kingdom of heaven, the literal visible kingdom that is given to the literal visible nation of Israel, he used that nation, or he, he wanted to use that nation to reach the world. That nation hits its apex under Solomon. And if you read back there in Solomon's time, the whole world is wondering at Solomon's wisdom. And he impacted the world in that time, but it didn't last very long, only 40 years, and then it began to decline. In the New Testament, God's structure under the kingdom of God, the spiritual kingdom, is going to be the church, the body of believers that make up the true church of Jesus Christ. And God's structure of reaching the world in the New Testament will be uh, the church. And of course we understand that there's two concepts to the church. I gave you this last week. You have the church militant, you have the church triumphant. Two different concepts of understanding the church. but. We looked at patterns based on, as I said, the Old Testament nation of Israel, the tabernacle, the ark, how that the ark uh, is a relationship to Israel, like Christ uh, and the church is a relationship to us. And it formed for us the patterns that we want to see. New Testament Christianity and the church uh, are the two central figures by which all our lives should revolve around. Everything stems from that. The Bible says that Christ loved the church and gave himself it. The Bible says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. And so we learned about these things. We learned about the great keys in the Bible. The understanding patterns will be the number three. Number three, and and I said it last week, you can prove anything with numbers. And of course, we never take numbers anywhere that God doesn't take it. And in the Bible, it's very clear that the the patterns by God does things will always be uh, by a a system of threes. That forms the balance for us. It gives us the right balance. We talked about the building and furnishing of your spiritual life. You have three basic needs in your life as as a Christian. You have emotional needs, you have physical needs, and you have spiritual needs. Those three need to be perfected through the Word of God that God takes the things of the Bible, builds you, and builds the furnishings in your life like we saw in the tabernacle, the seven pieces of furniture, how that they relate to you uh, in, your, in your walk, and your work uh, for the Lord uh, in the ministry. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 says this. It says, Being confident of this very thing, that He hath begun a good work in you and will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. In your Bible, you'll have two days. You'll have the day of the Lord, always be the second coming of Christ. You have the day of Jesus Christ, will always be the rapture of the church. When you got saved, God started a work in you, a good work in you. That work needs to be perfected through the Word of God. That work needs to be defined and perfected in your life that you come to the place to the rapture of the church that you give God everything that He wants from you and certainly everything that He saves you for. Now today... We're going to go a little farther. We're going to look at it a little deeper. And we're going to look at the balance that should be in every church. And we know that Proverbs chapter 11, verse 1 says that false balance is an abomination in the sight of God. In our church, in your life, we want to strive to have the right balance. And you're going to see today that that balance will come down through a series of things that are all laid out in threes. Bubba, would you have to stand up and uh, ask God's blessing on the, on the service this morning? Amen. Churches can get out of balance. Christians can get out of balance. And I want you to understand today, when they get out of balance, I want you to know why they get out of balance. And, uh, and when they do, uh, it, it's very important to understand the process. A lot of this today, I've, I've been in the ministry for, all, for 50 years. A lot of this today is nothing more than the lessons that I have learned uh, by going through and watching God do what He does, watching the people that God has brought across my path, being involved in churches, seeing pastors in churches all over the country, preaching at them, and then uh, and and my own church. And we're going to use our church as an example in many things today, but in reality, we're going to be talking about any church. Any church. Uh, Christianity in general, as you find it. Most pastors, unfortunately, would not be able to even explain Uh, the balance of their church. They wouldn't even see it in that light. And that's a tragedy because that balance is crucial uh, to the church fulfilling the mission that God has called them to do. And all of this stuff about balance, and you're going to see it as we unfold it here this morning, all this stuff about balance in a church, the balance of a congregation, uh, will be found in the church of the wilderness, Acts chapter 7, the nation of Israel, uh, which models for us in a pattern As we've already seen so far, all that this church needs to have uh, in in what it does. And let me begin by saying this. In all areas of our Christian life, and churches too, we always need to be in a constant state of redefining ourselves. You'll always want to come to the point where as you grow spiritually, uh, you you understand more, you'll see more, you'll, you'll do more, And it will cause you, if you're honest with yourself, it will cause you to stop and look at yourself and begin to change some things, redefine some things. In your relationship with God, you're going to be constantly redefining things. In your marriage, you're going to be constantly redefining things. With your kids, you're going to be constantly redefining things. And it's a crucial aspect of everything. And churches need to constantly be looking at where they're at and redefining themselves. Churches are made up of people. When you get people who are spiritually moving along and maturing, and you get 200 of them that are, that are, that are, that are really working and doing what the Lord wants them to do, you're going to find that that church will be in a constant flux of looking at itself, redefining itself. Most churches get stuck in a rut, Most churches think of a mentality that was in existence 50 years ago, and they can't ever get out of that rut to see themselves that the problem is they have to redefine. 50 years ago, when I was a young Christian, uh, Christianity was not like it is today. There was a whole set of rules that have been lost today. There was a whole mindset of Christianity that's gone today. And churches have lost the ability to redefine themselves how to address those issues. Because those issues are vital. They're vital. Churches are made up with people, as I said. And uh, when things happen in a church that it grows, it makes a, a redefining process. It's a lot like I remember the first telescope I ever bought. In, I, You know, I've been into astronomy for many, many years. I don't get to do it much anymore. But I'll never forget the first telescope that I bought. It was a cheap little deal. And it only, it only, it, it only had about uh, four or five, six different powers on it. It wasn't a very expensive one. But I'll never forget. I was so excited. And I, I went out, and it rained all that day, and I was so bummed because I wanted to look through it. And then it cleared off about just as it was getting dark. And there... Over in my front yard, the moon was just coming up. And I'll never forget. I looked at the moon through my natural eyes and I saw it and I thought, wow, I can't wait. And I and I put an eyepiece in it that that gave me twenty-five power, brought the moon twenty-five times closer. And I remember looking down at it and I thought, well, that looks pretty good, but you know, that's that's not very spectacular. I mean, uh, I mean, but it looked better. I mean, uh, and then I popped in another one and and now I went up to about a hundred power, hundred times closer. That was pretty impressive. When I worked all the way up to as high as it would go, which brought the moon about 250 times closer, I was astounded. And I never forgot that because you know what? Your life and my life is like looking at it through a telescope. Right now, you only see it at 25x. As you grow, pretty soon you're going to look at it more critically at 100x. By the time you get some good, solid, biblical principles down in your life, when you start to redefine yourself, when you look at that moon, I mean, you look at it with a naked eye, it looks beautiful. You look at it through a telescope of 300 power, man, it's cracks and crevices and beer cans and chewing gum wrappers. It's a mess. (laughs) And, you know, your life looks pretty good at 25x. But, boy, you crack it down to about 300 power and you're going to see some cracks in your armor. I mean, that's, that's redefining yourself, especially yours. That's, that's redefining yourself. That's really coming to the point where, this is Captain America down here. He's my hero. He does everything. Yes, you buddy. I love you. It's a thing where you redefine yourself. Redefining yourself is looking at you through the eyepiece of the Bible. And the more you grow, the more you get into it, not the better you look, the worse you look. We're all like that woman in the fairy tale. We like to look in the mirror and say, mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the fairest of them all? And the mirror always lies to you. It says, well, you are. And so you're happy with it. But the Bible says that the Word of God is a, is a mirror, that when you behold the natural look of your face, and it shows you that you're not as pretty as you think you are spiritually, you're not as good as you are spiritually, the Bible says that we go away from that and forget what manner of man we are. It's easy to forget the problems we have because it's so much fun to talk about the good things we are. But when you're in a constantly state of redefining yourself, it helps you understand those things. And churches need to be redefining themselves. The worst thing a Christian or a church could ever do is to get satisfied where they're at and stop defining themselves uh, and stop their spiritual growth. And of course, um, this comes down to us being honest with ourselves. Yet it happens all the time, and it causes, for in our own personal life, all kinds of problems. A pastor, and someday you boys, probably some of you will be pastoring, a pastor who doesn't see and understand this concept is doomed to fail from the start. You never judge a church by its size. That's a fatal mistake. I grew up in an era where that churches were large congregations and every pastor would die to have 5,000, 4,000, 3,000 people. My old father the Lord said one time just because they got a crowd don't make it a church. And that is so true. You never you never judge a church by its size. You always judge it by the furnishings within that church that the people have. That's the key. Now I want to look at some things about the church in the wilderness. And then I want, to, I want to try to make the parallels that we can understand our church better, uh, our congregation, based on the congregation of the nation of Israel. The parallels are absolutely incredible. Now, I want you to come to Deuteronomy chapter 1. And I want to read the first three verses for you. And then uh, we'll, we'll, make, uh, we'll, make some, we'll make some comments here. Chapter 1 says this, These be the words which Moses spake unto all Israel on this side of Jordan in the wilderness, in the plain over against the Red Sea, between Paran and Tophel, and Laban and Hazeroth, and Dizaheb. Then he says in verse 2, There are eleven days journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir unto Kadesh bar And then verse 3, And it came to pass in the fortieth year, in the eleventh month, on the first day of the month, that Moses spake unto the children of Israel, according to all that the Lord had given him in the commandment to them. You know what's astounding about that that passage? When they come out of Egypt, it's a picture of you and me coming out of the world. Exodus chapter 12 says that they come out of Egypt by the blood of a lamb put on a door. You get out of the world by the blood of the lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, being put uh, on your sin. And they begin a journey through the wilderness, journey, uh, wilderness to get to the promised land. Now, I don't know what you think about the promised land. Most people think the promised land is, is heaven. It's not. Uh, the promised land in the Old Testament for Israel uh, was a place where God was going to fulfill those promises to him, <coughs> to them that he gave Abraham. Literal promises. They're in the kingdom of heaven. <coughs> so the promised land is simply what the name means. For Israel, it was them getting to where God promised them that land that was His. So they go on a journey to get there. For you and for me, the promised land is not heaven. The promised land is the place in your Christian life once you get saved that you cross over from the wilderness of sin. And now you live in a land that is filled with the principles and the promises of the Word of God every day of your life. It's a picture of your spiritual maturity. Now, the thing that's so amazing about this is that when he comes down here, he makes the statement that when they come out of Egypt to get to the promised land where they were going to cross over, it was an 11-day journey. But it took them 40 years to get there. And I got a question I want you to continually ask yourself through this sermon. What's taking you so long? What's taking you so long? What took them so long? They could have got to the place in their life where they lived by the promises of God, where God would protect them and take care of them. They could have got there in an 11-day journey. It took them 40 years. And you can get to the place in your life where you live by the promises of God, the principles of God, and you've been saved how long? And you're not there yet. What's taking you so long? I look at the models and the patterns in the Bible. You know, you have the 12 disciples. He picks them in Matthew chapter 10. He spends three and a half years with them. He teaches them in three and a half years. And then he feels comfortable that they can pick up and take on where they're going for him. So he goes back to heaven. That tells me if you've been shaved after three and a half years, you had to have a pretty good handle on things. I get to leave it a little closer. Back in back in the Old Testament, we're dealing with Solomon and building the temple. You know, back there in 1 Kings chapter 6, 7, and 8. That temple is a picture of your body because the Bible says, what not you know, what, what not you know, know that your body is the temple of God? Your body is God's temple. Now, in the Old Testament, and I've told you this before, in the Old Testament, the temple was in a fixed place and all the world came to the temple. In the New Testament, your body is a temple and you take it to the whole world. That temple is one of the most amazing things that you ever study in the Bible. It's a picture of God building you. It took him seven years to build it. What's taking you so long? Some of you have been saved a lot longer than that. And I get it. I'm giving you a break here because I realize some of you were in dead churches for so long and you didn't do anything and then God brought you here and you're digging into the Bible and you're going. I know. But I'm watching you and you better be put together by seven years or something's wrong. Eleven days they could have been in the land of milk and honey. Took them 40 years. You can get to the place in your life where you're living by the promises of God as fast as you want. What's taking you so long? You know, it's a great lesson. They may have been ready physically to cross over Jordan now that they're two million plus strong. But it's not about your physical ability. They may have been ready physically to go over. They were not ready spiritually to go over You can have all the great ability of the world, but if your spirituality isn't built on the principles and the patterns of God, you ain't going anywhere. Nothing like an opportunity to learn the Bible completely. Here, anyhow, to really reveal where you're at with that book. I've had people come here and say, I want to learn the Bible. I want to learn this. I want to learn the Bible. I want to grow. I want to grow. And I want to get into the Bible. I want to study it with you. I want to get in there. I want you to teach me everything that there is. You know what? After being here two years, some of them haven't even finished discipleship yet. What's taking you so long? What's taking you so long? Nothing like being faced with learning that book that will reveal where you're really at about it. (laughs) <laughs> At the end of the day, folks, it isn't about it isn't about your friends, it isn't about who you're in love with or this or that. At the end of the day, it it's about you and that book. Amen. That book lays us out long before we lay it out. And the book of Deuteronomy in particular, and we're talking about this today because it's the bulk of what we want to see. It's built around three sermons. You might know it was three. The whole book breaks down around three sermons that Moses preaches to the church in the wilderness. The congregation that he's in charge of. The first sermons in chapter, and these, these three sermons will form a balance for you. These three sermons will help you stay in a state of redefining who you are if you follow them. Of course, Most people won't, but if you do, they will. Now, chapter one through four is the first sermon, and he talks in that about a review of the past history with God. He tells them to remember what God has done for them, where they came from, and where they need to get to. And you know, there's nothing that will help you keep your perspective with God, and nothing that will keep you redefining yourself, than understanding where you came from and where God found you and how you looked when God found you and where you're at now? Somebody says, well, back then I was absolutely nothing. I got news for you. You're absolutely nothing now without him. Amen. Your ability doesn't mean anything. Where's the furnishings? How come it only took them 11 days to get to the promised land, but it took them 40 years? What's taking you so long? What are you doing? The second sermon is found in chapter 5 through chapter 26. And this is the second giving of the law. Deuteronomy means deutero. It means two. When two people get up and sing, it's a duet. Like Tabby in the piano here this morning. It was a duet, her and the piano. Get it. Deutero, Two. So it's called Deuteronomy, second giving of the law. You know why he had to, Moses had to get a second giving of the law because after forty years the nation of Israel failed to leave their children any heritage of what God had done with them. So they wander for forty years till they all die, and then God gives the law a second time because the parents, the parents failed to give their kids what God had done. See, not much changes from the Old Testament to the New Testament. You drive cars, they rode chariots. You wear pants and shirts, they wear robes. But nothing's changed. Human nature is always the same. Then the third sermon, chapter 27 through chapter 33. He tells them to renew their covenant with God. He tells them to always keep looking forward to the inheritance that God has for them. You know what ought to drive you forward to do what God, for God, what He wants you to do, besides the fact of what He did for you? It's what He's got for you. Somebody said, well, I don't know that that's the right motive. Oh, it is the right motive. Because it compared to what the world's got for you, what God's got for you is always better. So it's okay to look at what god got forward for you compared to what the world had for, it for you. The world had hell for you. Looking forward to that, are you? The world had hell for you. God's got heavens and all the blessings. And you know what? Somebody says, I can't wait to get to heaven where I won't have any problems. I want to tell you something. You can get your little slice of heaven right here if you want it. It's taking you too long. You know what Israel did? They do what a lot of you do. Israel got to the place where they come out of there and they, they... they make it in 11 days right up to Karbash there where they're going to cross over. And you know what they do? They send the spies out. And those spies go over there, you know, they sneak in at night. And boy, they look over there and there are giants walking around over there. All these nations that against God and against Israel have taken over the whole land. They see the opposition and they come back to Moses and he says, Man, we're like grasshoppers in their sight. We can't go over there. It's a beautiful place. I mean, the grapes over there are like basketballs. It's an incredible place. But boy, the opposition is there. You know what some of you did to quit you from growing? You saw all the blessings of serving God, but then the opposition got you down. You never realized that God promised them that if they stayed with the book and did what God told them to do, it doesn't matter if those giants are 600 feet tall, God's going to bring them down. There's nothing in your life that's going to stop you. What has taken you so long? What, Eleven days, they could have got there. Now, based on all of this, I, 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 I want to show you three people groups that are found with the congregation of the nation of Israel. You might know it was three, the church in the wilderness. And how you're going to find today in our church, any church across this country, around the world, these same three people groups. God wanted Israel to grow. Israel didn't grow. God wants you to grow. Some of you won't grow. I'm going to show you why. I'm going to show you why you come to a point in your life where you won't start redefining yourself. Maybe you never did to begin with. Churches in balance or out of balance will be based on these three people groups. Now, you know, in the New Testament, you have a picture of Christianity, and they're found in the 12 apostles. And I've given you this before, so this is not new to most of you, but with the 12 apostles, you find the three people groups that you find in every church. You had the 12 apostles. One of them was a phony, Judas. One of them was a counterfeit. One of them wasn't saved. That tells me right out of the chute that in any church where everybody claims to be saved, probably not everybody ever saved. I would be lying to you this morning if I didn't tell you that very honestly, there's some of you I worry about. I really do. I love you. I'd do anything in the world to help you. But there's some of God's people that I've met in my life that claim to be saved, and I've got to be honest with you, I've never seen one thing in their life that ever, ever gave the indication that they'd ever truly been born again. Now, I'm not judging anybody. But the Bible says, by their fruits you shall know them. And I want to tell you something else. When you truly get saved, something changes about you. And you find a guy or a gal who says they're saved, but still lives like the world, drinks like the world, does all the things the world does, and cares absolutely nothing about spiritual things, you'll keep me up at night. Because I know the pattern. So you had the 12. One of them was a phony. You had 11 left. Out of the 11 left, Three experienced the power of God in a greater way. You know who they are, Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John see greater things than the rest of the apostles. On the Mount Transfiguration, when the Lord is transfigured and steps beyond Calvary and glorified like he will be at the second coming of Christ. It was Peter, James, and John. When the rising of Jairus' daughter, that little girl that was dead, when she raises from the dead... That great miracle, Peter, James, and John. There are some of God's people who experience the power of God greater than others. And then out of that three, you had one who went all the way. He was John. At the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, all the other disciples have run and left him. John goes all the way to the end. You know, in John chapter 13, John is the only apostle that Jesus says he loves. Now, I know that Jesus loved them all. I get it. I understand it. But he's the only one that the Bible says that he loved. Jesus had a special love for John above the others. Now, I know that's hard for some of you to grasp because uh, you don't think that God plays favorites. Well, it wasn't the fact that, 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 that Jesus had a special love for John as much as it was. John had a special love for Jesus. See, Jesus loves you as much as he loved the next guy. The problem is you don't love him enough. That's the problem. What takes you so long? What takes you so long? John is the only one, when they're at the Last Supper, he leans over and he lays his head on the breast of the Lord Jesus Christ and he hears the heartbeat of God. No one else in the Bible ever heard God's heartbeat. And the only other person that could hear the God's heartbeat is you through the Word of God. That's what makes you successful in ministry. You get God's heart. You hear God's heartbeat. You love the things that God loves. You hate the things that God hates. And His heart guides you. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all your heart, all your mind, and all your soul. It was John who was chosen to write... 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, the Gospel of John, which portrays Christ as the Son of God in my, 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 the book of Revelation. You know, in John chapter 13, verse 22, Jesus says, One of you is going to betray me. And the Bible says that every one of the disciples looked at Jesus and says, Lord, is it I? Lord, is it I? Lord, is it I? John looks at him and says, Who is it? John knew it wasn't going to be him. All the rest of them wasn't sure it wasn't going to be him. Are you sure it wouldn't be you? What's taking you so long? What's taking us so long? Now, in the Old Testament, you have three groups within the church of the wilderness. Acts chapter 7 What is what it's called. The congregation, just like ours, And they're defined for you how they camp. Now, last week, we talked about the importance of the ark and the tabernacle. Remember? In our third installment. Now, when they camped, the tabernacle was set up, the ark was in the tabernacle, and then all the tribes camped around that in a circle. If you ever want to see a good illustration of that, there's a guy... He was dead now, but dead for many, many, many years. His name is Bullinger. He put out a companion Bible. I wouldn't recommend a Bible for you, but he's got a lot of nice charts in it. And on page 181, he's got a layout of how the camp, by the tribe, where they all, where they all were. But there were three groups of people back here. I want to introduce you to them. I want you to see them, get to know them, and maybe to help you find out why you're not, why you're taking so long. hope so. Now, the first group I want to give you and introduce you to is the mixed multitude. The mixed multitude, their greatest characteristic was, is they camped as far from the ark as they could. In fact, the Bible says, we're going to see in a moment, that they camped in the outermost part of the camp. They got as far away from Jesus Christ as they could, except they still went to church. That sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? I don't know what an oxymoron is, but I heard somebody use it one time, and I thought it kind of fit. An oxymoron is something that doesn't make sense, but it does make sense, even though it doesn't look like it makes sense. And you've got to be a moron without oxygen to get it, so it's an oxymoron, I think. But anyway, they got as far away from the ark as they could, uttermost part of the camp. The second group was the 12 tribes themselves. And, and, and they pitched pitch inside the mixed multitude and they pitch around the ark in a circle. Then the third group was three families. You might know it would be three. Three families that worked and kept the tabernacle and everything that had to do with the ark that was central to Israel. And these people get as close to the ark as they can. Now, in any church, you're going to have these three elements of people. I don't care where it is. In any congregation, in any church, you're going to have this balance. And it'll either be the right balance or the wrong balance. and It'll be based on the pastor's understanding of it. Because I want to tell you something. Speaking as a pastor, speaking to you who someday may be a pastor, everything rises and falls on leadership. You as the pastor control the balance of your church. The reason why so many pastors don't control the balance, they have no idea about the balance. They wouldn't understand what I'm talking about this morning if somebody put a gun to their head. You get a right balance through a biblical process. Now let's look at these groups individually. We're going to start with a mixed multitude. Now we want to come over to the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 11. Now, let me introduce you in a more intimate way to our mixed multitude brethren. It says in 11.1, and when the people complained. Now, now we know they're Baptists now for sure. Now, when the people complained, it displeased the Lord, and the Lord heard it, and his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed them. Uh, that were in the, here it is, first time, uttermost parts of the camp. And the people cried unto Moses when Moses prayed unto the Lord, and the fire was quenched. And he called the name of the place Taborah, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Now here it comes. Don't have this marked in your Bible? Get it marked. And the mixed multitude that was among them fell a lusting, and the children of Israel also wept again and said, who shall give us flesh to eat? Now, I want to see this. I want you to see something before we go any farther. The mixed multitude in influenced the children of Israel. You saw that, didn't you? They influenced them. They were disgruntled, and it got into the 12 tribes being disgruntled. So I want you to hold on to that. Who shall give us flesh to eat? We remember the fish, which we did eat in Egypt freely, the cucumbers and the melons, And the leeks, and the onions, and the garlic. And now our soul is dried away. There is nothing at all besides this manna before our eyes. Now, I want to talk to you about four characteristics of the mixed multitude. And they're in every church. And this is what will get a church out of balance, and this is what this group will get you out of balance. And I'm going to talk to you today about staying in balance. But I really want you to ask yourself, what's taking you so long? Now, the first thing I want you to see is verse 6, that the mixed multitude is their attitude toward the Word of God. Here it is. Boring, dry, can't get anything out of it. Ever heard that before? Have you? Well, I just don't get anything out of the pastor's preaching. Well, I just don't. You know, I read the Bible, but I can't get anything out of it. You know, people are so predictable, it's unbelievable, because you learn the patterns. You know the first thing that goes when you get out of fellowship with God? The first thing that goes. The first thing that is like a red, when you walk into church, it's like a red flag over your head. The first thing that goes when you start to get out of fellowship with God is your love and desire for that book. And when you lose your desire and love for that book, there's a whole host of other things you lose. The joy, 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 joy down in your heart. You say, Well, it's the preacher. You've got to be kidding me. I can get something out of anybody. I've heard some of the most god awful preaching you ever heard in your life. And I'll come away with a couple of good sermons out of it. I just have to clean up and get it in the right context. We laugh about Joe Osteen. Joel Osteen's a clown. He's an idiot. I'm not. Sure, I was going to say that the Judgment Seat of Christ. He, I'm not sure he's going to make that one. But I got to be honest with you. You and I laugh about it all the time. You don't know this. Many times the jokes that I use on Sunday morning, I got at nine o'clock when Joel opened up his sermon monologue. I got to be honest with you. He's the worst preacher I ever heard. There's no sin. There's no judgment. There's no nothing. But in the time that I haven't heard him that I haven't gotten two or three sermons that I could clean up, use, because he had the concept, he was just so stupid, he didn't know what he had. My point is this, I can get something from anybody. I don't care. You put a Jehovah Witness up here, I'll get something from him. I may learn how to whack him better, but I'll get something from him. You know, don't tell me, don't tell me the problem is that you don't get something out of a sermon, it's the guy that's preaching. Because if I can get something out of Joel Osteen, you can get something out of the preacher you're listening to. You know what the problem is? You don't want anything from it anymore. You know what the problem is? You lost your love and desire, and now you only want to hear the things that tickle your ear when the Bible says, He that loveth the honeycomb, even the bitter things are sweet. Do you really want me to tell you just all the good things about you? How do you define yourself or redefine yourself when all you hear is what, how wonderful you are? How wonderful how wonderful the world is. How wonderful Christianity is. How positive it is. You know what? Most of your life is negative. So now in verse 4, the Word of God, the supernatural manna that God brought down to the mixed multitude... Our soul is dried away. There's nothing all besides this old Bible. Got that right. I'll tell you the second thing. This is why Moses preached to them in Deuteronomy. They forgot where God brought them from. They lost the reality of how terrible the world had treated them. Verse 5 says, oh, we remember the fish that we did eat in Egypt freely. Freely? You were slaves. I think I read that word freely back in Genesis 3 one time when somebody else threw that in there. But that's just me. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. My, 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 put all those together, you got a good case of gas. When you get out of fellowship with God, you forget how the world treated you. You're so out of touch with reality, you're now tempted to go back to Egypt. What they didn't remember was 430 years of bitter slavery. What they didn't remember was Pharaoh's whip marks on their back. What they forgot was their parents and their grandparents dying under the bondage of Egypt. What they forgot was the time that Pharaoh said, You've got to have so many bricks today. I'm going to take away your straw to make the bricks, which is going to make it a, almost impossible, and yet you've got to do the same number of bricks. That's what the world does to you. What's taking you so long? They forgot that. They forgot that. They forgot how they cried out to God, like some of you cried out to God, when your life was a mess, your family was a mess, everything about you was a disaster, and God saved you, and now all you got is boring old dry book from a preacher you can't get anything from. Here's the real problem, verse 4. Saying, who shall give us flesh to eat? Not around here you won't. Now your focus will not be on the church, the Holy Spirit of God, or the Word of God. Now all you want is the flesh you can get your hands on. The things of this world. The things that you should be out of your life. And then the fourth thing. All this leads to the number one issue that the mixed multitude in any church will always have. They complain about everything and everybody. They're always complaining. They're never happy. They're as far from the action in the ministry as they can get. Everything else in life becomes number one. The church of Jesus Christ takes last place. And in any church, you'll have these three kinds of people. In any church, you're going to have three kinds of people. You're going to have those who know what's going on and what's happening, those who have no clue what's going on and what's happening, and those who don't give a flip what's going on and happening. Just the way it is. These will be the mixed multitude who live on the uttermost part of a camp in the church of the wilderness, the congregation. People who have no commitment to anything relative to God and His salvation of them, saving them for His purpose. And in any church in America this morning, 99% of them, this mixed multitude will make up the bulk of their, of their congregations. Then I want to introduce you to the second group. This will be the 12 tribes themselves, who circle the tabernacle and the ark every time they camp. Now, these are good people, fundamentally, basically. And today in churches, they, met, they make up many, many people within the church. Hey, I've met people like this in 50 years of ministry. Been friends with 100 of them. And basically, fundamentally, they're good people. They really are. They love God to the best of their ability. They come to church. They'll do basic things that need to be done. At most churches, they'll make up probably 40 or 50 percent, you know, and the rest of it will be the mixed multitude or something like that, you know, it, 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 but they're good people. But here's the thing about these people. This group will always struggle when tough times come. They always will. They're good people. They're just not foundationalized in the Word of God. As long as all goes well in their Christian life, they're great. First time their world falls apart, they fall apart. And they get so easily sidetracked. When you study the Old Testament, you see it a hundred times. In Exodus chapter 14, when God brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, Did you ever stop and look at the miracles that God did to brought them out? And here they are. They get up to the Red Sea, and the Red Sea is impassable. Somebody in the tail end looks behind and sees Pharaoh coming after them. And now they all begin to complain and murmur that Moses brought them out here to die, and Pharaoh's going to catch up with them and kill them. It wasn't 20 minutes ago that he did the great miracles, and then in spite of that, he splits the Red Sea. And I promise you there were some of them then, oh, he split the Red Sea, but I'm going to get my new shoes muddy. I just bought these at DFW, or whatever that place is called. VFW. Yes, sir. And you know what God did? He tells you in the Bible, because He knew, He wanted me to tell you that some of those people worry about getting their feet muddy. So the Bible says the land's dry. And I can just see Him. You know why? Because I see you. Come on. God is great. Let's go across. Oh, boy, onward, Christian soul. Come on, let's go. Let's get across here. (laughs) Ha, ha, ha. God is great. Oh, great is our faithful. And they got to the other side. And they're all piled up now and looking around. And somebody in the tail end looks back and says, you ain't going to believe this. Pharaoh just started down the dry land that we just crossed over. He's right on our tail. You know what they did again? You tell me because you do it all the time. So do I. They started whining and complaining again. Oh, here they come. <laughs> oh, I wish there was money. Then they would fall down and get stuck. Here it comes. <laughs> See, God's always got a plan. God just waited until they got in the middle and closed the water and they all drowned it. Now, I know that modern scholarship tells you that the Red Sea is a fable. You go to Bible college someplace, and they'll tell you it wasn't really the Red Sea. It was the Sea of Reeds. It's a mistranslation. It was no real miracle of God. They, they, crossed, they crossed over the Sea of Reeds, and the water there was only six or seven inches deep. But it wasn't the Red Sea. Well, to me, you see, that's a miracle, too, because all of Pharaoh's army drowned in six inches of water. That's pretty good, <laughs> I think. Amen. You know what? You can't get ahead of that book. you remember in Exodus chapter 17 when he didn't have any water at Rephidim and they're whining and complaining about no water in Leviticus chapter 10 the sons of Aaron offered strange fire and he killed them and everybody's upset you already saw Numbers chapter 11 how about the rebellion in Numbers chapter 16 at Korah where they're jealous about Moses' leadership and God comes down and the whole earth opens up and swallows them. Hey, they're not out of the promised land three weeks and Moses goes up to get the word of God to bring back to the people of God and they make a golden calf. Don't tell me about them. i pastored them for 50 years. These group of people are good people, but they're very easily influenced and they can't really stand on their own. They believe the right things, they just never figure out why they believe it. They, they, they have to have strong leadership, and they'll never be able to make hard choices on their own. Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14, that this crowd is blown about by every wind of doctrine. These people are good people, yet somebody else has to win their kids to Christ. They're good people, yet somebody else has to disciple their kids. Their spiritual life and growth will always depend on somebody else bailing them out every time they get into a mess. And yet they're good people. They lose faith very easily and can be led away from the truth because they're really not grounded in the truth. You know, we talk about the Jehovah Witnesses and the Mormons and all that cult group stuff, and they truly are. And many people ask me, could a Jehovah Witness or a Mormon go to heaven? Well, we know theologically they can't, but I got news for you. Most Jehovah Witnesses are going to heaven. You know why? That's probably a lot of Mormons. You know why? Because most of them were Baptists at one point and got saved and never grew in the Word of God, and then somebody got in and blew them away with a new doctrine, and they went and followed it. I don't know how many I'm talking to who said, oh, I used to be a Baptist. At some point in your life, what's taking you so long? It took 11 days to get there. It took them 40 years. What's taking us so long? I mean, we say we love God in the Bible, don't we? Now, here's the problem. This 12 tribes, are second group, they're just simply tied in too closely with a mixed multitude. In the Old Testament, from Exodus to 2 Chronicles, we saw, it, we saw it in Numbers chapter 11. Every issue that Israel had, every problem that was brought up, that got away from God, that got went against Moses, that got against what God was trying to do, every problem the 12 tribes had started with their hanging out with a mixed multitude. And in churches today, I'd say that every issue you'll have in the church will start with this crowd. I'm sure of it. I say that based on, on the Bible, the models, the patterns, and just 50 years of dealing with people. I want tell you something. I told you this yesterday in Bible Institute. By, wasn't that good yesterday? We had a good time in Bible Institute yesterday, didn't we? Amen. You stay with that, and you'll get it in three years. I guarantee you. But you know what? After salvation, the two things that will kill you spiritually, deader than a door now just be two things. It's just two things. You know, we think it's all these other... No, no, no. After you make the decision to trust Christ and you truly get saved, there's only two things that's going to mess you up and kill you dead under the doornail spiritually. You know what the first one is? It's incredible. The first one is who you marry. Who you marry. Who you marry will determine whether you go with God or whether you don't. I mean, a guy got there, he sees this gal, she's beautiful, you know, and uh, man, she's, uh, she's hot and she's everything that he ever wanted. And, and you know, she just says, man, and that's not that, and he never stops and follows the principles of Genesis chapter 27. All he follows is his own flesh because that's what he's at. And you know what? He gets hooked up with that gal, and his life is over as far as the ministry is concerned. Amen. And you gals are the same way. Mr. Wright. Oh, I met Mr. Wright. No, he's Mr. Wrong. Mr. Right hadn't showed up yet. Oh, I met my Boaz. How quickly Mr. Boaz turned into Mr. Dumbaz. After you get saved, there's two things that are going to end your walk with God quicker than a heart attack and a stroke. The first one is the person you marry, and the second one is the people you hang out with. You are who you associate with. When you allow negative people in your life, you will become negative. You see it all through the Bible. I've I've seen... People who married a guy who wasn't where he needed to be, or guys who married a gal where they weren't needed to be, and they're going to say to their heart, you know what, I can still serve God and do it. I want to tell you something. When you take your Christian life that is supposed to be positive on a book and you allow negative things in it, listen to me. You're going to lose. Amen. You're not going to beat the system. The devil will make sure you don't. After five, six, seven, eight years of being married in a situation like that, you'll get so wore out, you'll give up. It'll be easier to go with the flow than it is to hold the line. And in marriage, God never designed it for you to hold the line by yourself. He designed for you and him to hold the line together. The mixed multitude caused them to wander for 40 years. The mixed multitude caused them to die in that 40 years wandering. Never got to the promised land. And the mixed multitude will cause you to never get where God wants you to be, to the promises, I guarantee you. You better learn the pattern. Your association with a mixed multitude will always result in one thing, your downfall. Now let's talk about our last group, number three here. Now our last group, interesting enough, will, will not be made up of a tribe, even though it is. It's the tribe of Levi. But rather, the emphasis is not called the tribe of Eli- Levi in, the, in, our, in our story. They're called families. This congregation, these people are called families in this Old Testament church. Now, these families, there's three of them in here. might know it would be three. Their jobs that they do will form a pattern of the kind of family you want to build your, in your church. When I talk about a pastor keeping a good balance in his church, he, and I'm telling you right now, he's in complete control of that balance, he and he alone will set up the balance of his church by his understanding and then his implementing uh, the patterns and the models found in the Bible to his people. And hold them accountable to it. i say it again. Everything rises and falls on leadership. And I'm going to tell you, the problem in Christianity today can be brought down to one single area, even though I know there's a lot of problems and a lot of issues. But fundamentally, you can bring the problem in a church today down to one issue, and that is a lack of good, solid biblical leadership from the pulpit. Everything else will rise and fall on that. Now, allow me to introduce you to these three families that are the inner families that are key to Israel and really any church today. These three families represent in any church who will get the job done while others stand by and watch. These three families are closer to the ark and the tabernacle than the other two groups. You see, it's interesting to me, you got the mixed multitude out here, then you got the tribes here, then you got the ark in the middle with these three families. You know what the three families did? They put themselves in a position that they never had a choice. Because when you come through the Bible, the three families were never affected by the mixed multitude. The 12 tribes were right next to them. The influence came in. The three families positioned themselves so close to the ark and the tabernacle and the central thing of God that the mixed multitude could never penetrate because they never wanted to get that close. Now that's worth a lot of money, what I just gave you. You won't get it, but it is. The ministry they had was to the things that God loved. To them, it wasn't a job. It was a lifestyle. It wasn't something they did on Sunday or Thursday night and then forgot about the rest of the week. It was something that was conscious on their mind 24-7. Their ministry was all-inclusive in their lives and in their family. You couldn't separate it out. Now, the first family is called the Cahoathites. And they come from the second son of Levi. Their job in particular was the taking down and the setting up and the transport of all the furniture of the tabernacle. That's what they did. The second group were called Gershmanites. They're from the firstborn of Moses. Their job in particular was the taking down and the setting up of the tents and the skins and the coverings and the curtains connected with the tabernacle. The third group were called the Mirianites from the third son of Levi. Their particular job was the setting up and the taking down of the boards, the pillars, the sockets, and all the other things connected with the ark and the and the uh, and the tabernacle. Now I want you to understand that their position in the congregation of Israel in the church in the wilderness was absolutely crucial where the mixed multitude was as far from the ark as they could get, these three families were as close to it as they could get. It's a great concept. Now, these three families have some incredible characteristics I want to talk to you about. And they match exactly the three kind of families you want to have in your church to keep the balance the way it needs to be. We're going to talk about that in a moment. Now, the first thing I want you to see is these three families were a minority. God's always going to have his faithful few. When two million plus Israel, Israelis went into apostasy back in the Old Testament, God told the people there's still 7,000 have not bowed the knee to Baal. That's a remnant. When Israel went back in 1948, that was a remnant. When they go back into tribulation, that is a remnant. We're living in the Laodicean church period. The people who are getting their job done is the remnant of the Philadelphian church age. There's a total of 8,500, verse 3, 3 plus million people in the tribes. They're a remnant. And it was that remnant that kept the things of God alive for the rest of the church. And in any church today, it'll be this remnant that keeps everything moving for everybody else. Some of you get the blessings of God that you don't deserve. I mean, that's true of all of us, really. But some of you get the blessings of God that you don't deserve. You know why you get them? Because you're hooked up with a church where there are people that are doing things for God and the blessings come down on them and just happen to spill over on you. It's like a country turning to the Bible and making the Bible the central book. There's a lot of people in the country who don't like the Bible and don't believe it. But the whole country gets blessed because... The country as a nation accepts it. And when a church believes the Bible is the Word of God and sticks with the Bible, you just being here, no matter how where you're at spiritually, you're going to get a little bit of the backup whitewash on you. It's just how it works. So I'll be careful when you complain about things. God may take that away from you and then you have your real problems. Amen. Now the second thing here is the fact that the real key to these people will be their attention to detail. And I want to talk about this. It's incredible. These people had to set up and tear down the tabernacle with all its components. And I want to tell you something. That is one of the most intricate things that you have ever seen in your life. They had to tear it down. In 40 years, they probably had to tear it down 10,000 times at least. And every time they tore it down When they stopped, they had to put it back together again. And every time they did it, they had to do it exactly the way God said it needed to be done. There wasn't any, after what, the first 10 years, somebody come up and said, oh, we got to put up the tabernacle. Hey, you know what? Last time, it normally takes us two days to do it. I figured out we can get it done in a day. We don't need all these parts. We can work it this way. And so many of God's people, what gets you in trouble is that when you start realizing or don't realize that God wants your Christian life done exactly by the principles and you try to start making them up on your own and short-cutting the principles. They were exact in what they did every time. 40 years worth. Every time they had to set it up, it had to be done exactly the way God said it needed to be done. They couldn't find a quicker, easier way to get it all set up. In other words, they couldn't redefine the patterns that was comfortable for them. Simply put, in 40 years, they followed exactly the pattern of the ark and the tabernacle, exactly as God told them. And for us, the exactness of the patterns of the principles in the Bible, you have to do it exactly the way that he wants it done. We talked about it at the beginning of this and starting a church. You can start it any way you want. There's only one way to start it from the Word of God. We talk about finding a spouse. You all want to find a wife. You all want to find a husband. But I'm going to tell you right now, there's an exact way to do it. If you don't do it that way, you're on your own. We already talked about the mixed multitude. You can blow me off and you can decide that you're going to be friends with this person and that person and their negativity is not going to rub off on you. And you know what? It already has. You can have your own ideas about raising up your kids and raising your family. And if you don't train up a child the way God tells you to do it, you're on your own. There's a pattern for everything that we do. You follow the pattern, you go God's way. You make up your own rules, you go your way. These three families stuck with the pattern for 40 years. What's taking you so long? Third thing. Their job was to protect and take care of all the things that were absolutely vital to God in the spiritual welfare of their church, their congregation, the church in the wilderness, the holy things, the dedicated things. There were things back there that when God established His kingdom, He had a treasury. And there were hallowed things, there were holy things that were put in that treasury. These guys protected it. These guys took care of it. These guys made sure that the world never saw it. And you know, when Israel got into trouble, when some of the kings started bringing in the other worldly kings and letting them see all the treasures that God had. You know what the holy things are and the treasures are of this church? It's many of you. In the heart of God's treasury, it's you who have loved that book, loved the Word of God, loved the ministry, and you're one of the three parts of that family, and you realize the way it needs to be done, and you've dedicated your life, and you are a peculiar treasure to this church. Now, some of you don't like that I preach loud. I haven't gotten loud yet. Some of you don't like the things I say. And I realize that some of you are the mixed multitude, so you're not going to like it. Some of you are in the middle there, and you just kind of take it. But you know why I do what I do? Because I, as a pastor, have an obligation to God to protect his treasure. I'll never let you men and women who are part of this church, who are part of this ministry, who are a peculiar treasure to God, I will do my best. Listen to me. I will do my best never to display you to the world will stay right in there close to that ark and right into that tabernacle. You are the peculiar treasure. You are what makes this church work. You are what God blesses this place with. It isn't me. Obviously, it's the Word of God, but you know what? The Word of God sitting up here by itself wouldn't do anything. It's you who have taken the Word of God, fallen in love with it, and allowing God to use you. And in the treasury of this church, just like in the treasury of the Church in the Old Testament, there were holy things that were dedicated to God, and every one of you are holy to God by your salvation, and then you have dedicated yourself to the things of God. Fourth thing, I want you to understand that their primary goal, overall goal in the Old Testament, was to get the tabernacle and the ark and all the things that were holy to God through the wilderness of sin to a permanent place that God had chosen in Jerusalem. And their job was to get the temple through the wilderness of sin to the promised land and in the millennium, it'll all be set up right. Right now, your body is the temple of God and you are living, I am living in the wilderness of sin. Our job, the job of this church, is to furnish you with the furnishings of God so you can take your temple through this mess called the wilderness of sin and get it established in the millennial reign of Christ with Him. That's our job. Our journey through the wilderness of sin. Remember, in the wilderness of sin, there was nothing found in the wilderness that would sustain them. Couldn't get any water, couldn't get any food. Everything had to be provided by God supernaturally. And I'm going to tell you right now, the mixed multitude will tell you about the leeks and the garlics and the melons of Egypt. If you're a child of God this morning, I want to tell you something. You better get it down. You can feast on the world's slop all you want, but it'll never satisfy you. Because there is nothing in the wilderness of sin that's going to give you any kind of peace or benefit. the fifth thing. These families were totally focused on the church that God gave them. Church of the wilderness in the Old Testament. These people completely isolated and separated themselves from the mixed multitude. They saw three things. You might know it will be three. They saw the church that God gave them for what it was. They understood the plan of God concerning the church God gave them, and they saw their family's place within that church to fulfill what God called them to do. So you'll not find anywhere in the Old Testament that one problem was ever caused for Moses with the 12 tribes or any place in Israel by these three families. Every issue Israel had stemmed from the mixed multitude and their influence into the 12 tribes. The 12 tribes could never penetrate into these three families. Not only did they see the church for what it really was, not only did they understand the plan of God for it, not only did they see their family's place in it, but they saw the mixed multitude for what they were, and they never allowed them to impact and influence their life. Their family and themselves were committed to the work of the Lord, and that was the key to the success of any church in its ministry. They show us, by example, through the patterns, through these three people groups, what every pastor should know and understand. Three great concepts of ministry. Three great concepts of ministry. And boy, if you ever pastor a church, take this with you. If you don't hear anything else I said, hear what I'm about to say, these next three things. Three great concepts of ministry. Number one. Those who do the least will always complain the most. They'll never be part of any solution, but they'll surely be part of a lot of problems. Second thing, those who invest the least will always cause the most problems. There's no investment of of yourself in the things of God. There's no urgency for the ministry. There's no responsibility, so there's no accountability. So there's no desire. You just come and take what you want and make no effort to do anything that God wants you to do. And you complain about everything and everybody... You judge, I mean, you judge, the, you judge the service, you judge the song service, you judge the temperature, you judge the preacher, you judge the decisions, you judge the person sitting next to you. You judge everything in this room except yourself. Third thing. Anytime you allow a mixed multitude in your life, you're going to lose. Amos three. How can two walk together except they be agreed? A little leaven leaven the whole lump. The cancer of any church, Old Testament or the New Testament, will always be the mixed multitude. There's only one thing you can do, and that's cut it out. Now, the church should have a good, strong balance. A pastor will know and understand from the patterns, as I'm talking today, what what he uh, will always have to, these three groups in his church, they're always going to be there. His job will be to keep the balance always in the favor of the three key families. In most churches, you have 60% mixed multitude, 30% the tribes, and 10% maybe the three families, if you're lucky. You want your church to be 70% the three families, 30% of the uh, tribes, and 10% or less of the of the uh, mixed multitude. And the pastor will be totally responsible for that balance. He'll never blame it. If his church is completely out of balance, he'll never blame it on anybody else. You're the guy, pal. You're in charge. Now, he accomplishes this a couple of ways. First of all, he knows where he's going and he knows what he wants to accomplish. And most important, he knows how to get there. So he has a vision that he keeps before the people. Nothing will keep people focused than you giving them clear direction of where you're going. Most pastors have no clue where they're going. They'll say, well, I'm going to build a church. How are you going to build it? Well, I'm going to preach the Bible. That's wonderful. There's a little more than that to it. Where are you going to take your church? Well, we're going to all get to heaven. That's great. What are you going to do in the meantime? What is your plan? What is your plan for taking individual families and developing them into the kind of families you want? You have no plan. Second thing, his mindset will be his church is not for everybody. You better get that through your head. He'll look to to develop a certain kind of individual. You always look at quality, not quantity. Third thing. He'll always focus on what God is doing in people's lives and not what the mixed multitude is complaining about. Fourth thing, he doesn't shy away from confrontation. He may not like confrontation, but he knows he has to deal with it. He focuses, his focus will always be on the truth of God's Word. If you say something, you better be man enough to back it up that that's what happened. It's just that simple. He'll preach, Acts chapter 20, verse 27, the whole counsel of God. He'll preach the things you like and the things you don't like. Five, he is able to make the tough decisions that have to be made. And in the ministry, there are some tough decisions that have to be made, and sometimes they're not popular. Six, he'll surround himself with the three families and allow them to help him in all that he does. He forms a dual accountability with them. 7 He'll base his church in on, on, his ministry on solid, hard, balanced Bible preaching and teaching. He'll make himself accountable to the people by what he preaches, but the people will make themselves accountable to him through his preaching. This will keep everything in a biblical perspective and a balance. It'll keep the mixed multitude to a minimum, but will always give the tribes and the families or anybody every opportunity to grow and be everything that God wants them to be. Now, years ago, I laid this out to a pastor who was having some problems in his church. And he gave, his response was, was typical for most pastors today. And he said, well, if I do that, what you just said, I'm going to lose some people. My answer to him was, you'll never lose anybody that you didn't need to lose. You see, it's a, it's a pipe dream to think that you've got to keep everybody in your church. I learned a lot of these lessons bitter hard way. Years and years and years ago, I had a guy that, uh, uh, and he was a good friend of mine. And that guy uh, came into my ministry, gave him things to do. He worked with me. did, a, And he did a lot of good things. And he, he knew his Bible pretty well. But he was a rat. He was an Absalom. And he always complained about things behind my back. And one day I pulled him in and I sat him down. And you know me, my first, uh, sometimes, you know, My biggest problem is that not only do I go the extra mile, sometimes I go a mile I shouldn't go. But that's me, part of my charm. I should have booted that guy right there. He crossed a line that, in most cases, I don't tolerate. But I didn't do it. I wanted to give him a chance because I thought he was worth the chance. So he goes, three, four years later, He had went underground, started to form a little private Bible study in his home that I knew nothing about, which has always been a no-no with me. You have a Bible study on Thursday night, unless somebody's discipling you or doing this or doing that, that's all you really need. You want another when you come and see me. I know what happens, but it happened with him. Where I should have lost one guy, four years later I lost 20 people. I learned a great lesson from that. Of course, God always takes care of it. To this day, he started a church. To this day, he's lost his church, lost his wife, lost his kids, has nothing. But at the end of the day, I learned a great lesson. You know what? You've got to be able to hold the line some places. And I'm telling you, when somebody starts to be negative in you and starts to talk about the things they don't like here or in any church... You give yourself over to it. If they're not willing to come in and fix the problem, you know, all my life I've wondered about this. <clears throat> Everybody who has a problem with us always thinks they're right and we're wrong. Well, if you're right, the Bible says either strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak, come and make it right. Find out what the problem is. You can't say you're right and not do right. you got a problem with anything here? I'll sit down with you. I'll bring some of them. We'll sit down, we'll work it out. If you're right, then come and make it right and let's do what's right. Don't tell me you're right and then go do wrong. You learn these things. You learn these things. Now you have on the record the biblical New Testament concept of what a church should be and how it should operate within the New Testament church age based on the patterns that's found in the Bible the church in the wilderness, the congregation of the nation of Israel. Patterns and models will be the key to anything in our Christian life. When I talk about a biblical New Testament local church, I'm talking about a church that has the right Bible and a pastor who understands and follows uh, and builds his church and his people on the models and the patterns. Not everybody will like it. That's okay. The mixed multitude never cared for Moses' leadership either as long as the hand of God is in the church and God is doing some things and people are getting saved and lives are changing, what does it matter? What anybody thinks about it? It Some of you sports guys will remember this. There was a famous coach of one of the pro teams and he had a quarterback controversy. And you know how the sports writers like to play up whoever is good and bad. They they just go crazy with it because that's how they make their money. And he had to make a decision, and obviously the outcome of his season as a football team was going to come down to what quarterback. And somebody asked him one time, what is the number one thing that you don't do as a coach when you're coaching your pro team? And his answer was this, never let the sports writers pick your quarterback, And I say this to you, never let the mixed multitude dictate how you run your church. For the end of the day, it doesn't matter. God will be God. And a mixed multitude, (coughs) they never liked anything anyhow. Never let them decide what you're going to do in ministry. You follow the patterns. But I end with this, and I leave you with this. We're going to have a lot of fun things today and tomorrow, but I don't want you to lose sight of this. What's taking you so long? Could have been there in 11 days, in the 40th year. How long is it going to take God's people to get to the promised land where they live by the promises instead of wandering around in the wilderness of sin for the rest of their life? You know, the greatest tragedy in the Bible, I think, and there's a lot of tragedies in the Bible. You know, the greatest tragedy in the Bible to me is that first generation that come out of Egypt never getting to the promised land. You know what the real tragedy of any church is? God's people who never get to the place where they live by the promises of God and they wander all of their lives. Where you have the power of the Word of God, the Holy Spirit of God, and the church to get you where you need to go. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We do love you. Thank you for all you do for us. Thank you for the time we've set aside to study your word today. And thank you for what you've given us. And Lord, these are good people. And Lord, these people are here for the most part, all of them, Lord, if not all of them, they're here because they want to grow and they want to learn. Help us to help them. Help us to look at the ones who are so dedicated to what we do here as the true treasures that they are. The hollowed things. The things that, the day-to-day that, This church would never, never be where it's at if it wasn't for the women and the men Uh, and uh, and our teenagers who have decided that this is where they're going to serve God and this is where the families are going to bond around that ark and that tabernacle and get as close to you while there'll be others that try to get as far away from you as they can. We love you. We thank you. And we praise you now for all you do for us. In Jesus' name and His sake we ask it. Amen. Amen. If you would, please go up there. If you're going to, Danny is up there. All the ladies that are cooking, get your ribs.